In February 2019, EFCA pastors and church leaders gathered at Trinity International University, Deerfield, Illinois, for the annual theology conference. The focus was on the theme, The Doctrine of Creation, Theological Significance and Implications. On this episode of the podcast, we share Todd Wilson's message on the topic, The Doctrine of Creation and Human Sexuality. Todd serves as co-founder and president of the Center for Pastor Theologians, Oak Park, Illinois. Delighted to be with you and excited to be able to speak on this important theme of the doctrine of creation and in particular the, uh, its relationship to human sexuality. I think Greg assigned me this topic because I have seven children. But uh, no, really very excited to speak on this theme that as Greg mentioned I have thought quite a bit about, and uh, I do believe, as he said, it really is one of the key, I think, pressure points uh, that the church is facing as it relates to culture, this theme of the doctrine of creation and human sexuality. But I want to tell you what I really want to talk about, actually. Don't you love when a speaker says that? They sign one thing, they say, well, I really want to talk about it, and they shoehorn in. I haven't cleared this with Greg. This is what in conference speakers' world is called a head fake, Right? What I really want to talk about is the sexuality of Jesus. And I want to talk about the sexuality of Jesus for two reasons. Two reasons that, of course, relate to our theme of the doctrine of creation and human sexuality. And the first of those reasons is, I'll put it very simply, Christ is the key to creation. Christ is the theological key that unlocks the beauty, unlocks the mystery, unlocks the goodness of creation. If you want to understand creation, you need to reflect deeply on the person of Christ. And if you have a defective view of Christ, you're going to have a defective view of creation. In his very person, Jesus Christ affirms the goodness of creation. He verifies the order, the telos of creation. He blesses the materiality of creation, all of which is hugely important for rightly understanding creation and for rightly understanding human sexuality. And so Christ is the theological, I'd even say the hermeneutical, epistemological key to creation. The second reason I want to talk about the sexuality of Jesus under this theme of the doctrine of creation and human sexuality is for this reason, to put it very simply, Christ is the key to sexuality. He is the theological key that unlocks the goodness and the beauty and the mystery of human sexuality. If you want to understand human sexuality, your sexuality, then I'd advise you reflect deeply on Jesus' sexuality. And if you have a defective view of Jesus' sexuality, which I think many, many Christians do, then you will have a defective view of human sexuality. In his very person, Jesus Christ affirms the goodness of human sexuality, He verifies the order or telos of human sexuality. And he blesses, I'll call it, the gritty materiality of human sexuality. And so in this talk, of course, I'm going to speak on the theme of the doctrine of creation and human sexuality. But I want to do so in a way that's not only, I hope, fresh for you, but faithful. Faithful to the fullness of the revelation that we have in Jesus Christ the one whom Scripture describes as the firstborn of all creation, the one in whom the fullness of deity dwells, the one through whom and for whom everything exists, the one true human being, the perfect God-man, Jesus Christ. My thesis for the talk is, is very simple. It's already been implied and in what I've said, and it's this. Jesus Christ is the key to the doctrine of creation. 
And his sexuality is the key to our sexuality. And what I want to undo in this talk is I want to unpack this thesis, this claim, with three specific affirmations that relate or connect to the story of Jesus. And three moments of the story of Jesus, or if you will, three movements in the story of Jesus. First, the incarnation of Jesus. Second, the resurrection of Jesus. And then third, the life of Jesus. And so here, kind of elaborated, are at the outset of the talk the three affirmations I want to make that unpack the thesis. Here they are. Number one, Jesus' incarnation affirms creation and embraces the goodness of human sexuality. Number two, Jesus' resurrection reaffirms creation and enshrines human sexuality for all eternity. And number three, Jesus' life reveals the order of creation and embodies genuine human sexuality. Christians for centuries have insisted that a close reading of the Bible teaches us that Jesus didn't simply play act as a human being. Instead, Christians have always affirmed that Jesus took on real flesh and blood. I like the way Hebrews puts it in chapter 2, verse 14, that Jesus, quote, partook of the same things as us. He was, quote, fully human in every way, Hebrews 2, 17. He even, Hebrews says, chapter 2, verse 18, suffered when he was tempted. We're talking here, of course, about the mystery of the doctrine of the incarnation, that wondrous and stunning reality that God has become human in the person of Christ. So that Jesus doesn't simply look like a man. He is a full-fledged human being just like us. With, as the Westminster Confession puts it, all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin. Fully God, fully human at the same time. This has been what the church has historically always confessed. But let's not stop there. Jesus became like us, not only in our humanity, but in our sexuality. That is, his body is a biologically sexed body, just like your body, just like my body. And so, as Scripture says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, John chapter 1, verse 14. But more than that, the Word took on sexual difference, gender, hormones, and all the rest. God the Son became a human, not in some abstract or general way, but in a very specific, embodied way as a particular male human being. So that what's true for you and me is true for Jesus. That the whole of his existence is conditioned by his sexuality. Let me put it a little more starkly. Through the incarnation, God the Son now has a Y chromosome and facial hair and a higher basal metabolism rate than most women and all the physiology and anatomy and biochemistry that are distinctive to being male. Jesus is not sexless like legions of angels. Jesus does not suffer from the condition of intersex that eludes medical classification as either male or female. Instead, the Word of God took on a particular kind of human flesh, the kind of human flesh, check it out, that goes through puberty, grows armpit hair, has a ring finger longer than his index finger like men do, as opposed to women, has a deeper voice than most women, and yes, has a penis. Some of you might be wondering, where is he going with this? Here's where I'm going with this. In the incarnation, the Son of God not only affirms creation in taking on human flesh, taking on creaturely created materiality, that's stunning in itself. A unique, powerful, history-transforming theological claim unique to the Christian faith. 
incredible. The incarnation affirms the goodness of creation in and through the incarnation. The Son of God affirms and embraces the creation, but he also embraces human sexuality. By becoming biologically sexed himself, the Son of God embraces, listen to this, the sexual differentiation that is core to human sexuality. In fact, the incarnation, I think, testifies eloquently to both the theological and the moral significance of sexual difference, of being male and female. Sexual differentiation is not simply a feature of creation that God blesses and declares to be good as he does for the first Adam. It is an essential part of our creaturely existence and one that the second Adam, the Son of God himself, willingly embraced. Of course, the story of Jesus doesn't end, and his sexuality, you might say, doesn't end with the incarnation. We need to look to the end of his story, to the resurrection. And what do we learn about human sexuality from Jesus' resurrection? Well, what we see is that the resurrection didn't bring an end to the son's embodied existence or his male sexuality. Jesus was raised from the dead. He didn't stop being human or cease to be male. There is, in other words, a continuity between Jesus' incarnation and Jesus' resurrection. So Jesus can say to his disciples, Luke chapter 24, Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. In other words, Jesus is still Jesus. And he's as much a human being now as he ever was. So that think about it, even now in heaven, he has the same anatomy as he did before the resurrection. He exists at this very moment, this present moment, as a male human being, not as a sexless, disembodied spirit. We can, and I think we should say more than that. We should say this, that the second person of the Godhead, the Son who took on flesh in the person of Jesus, will continue in his embodied existence as a man for all eternity. Think about that for a moment. Linger on that thought for a moment. Let that sink in for a moment. I imagine if you did a quiz of your congregations, I would imagine some, many, perhaps even most, would not know that to be true, what I just said. Jesus was a man for 33 years, and then God zapped him back up to heaven, where he's a kind of spirit thing who's like doing a bunch of stuff now. So linger on that for a minute. When God the Son chose a Y chromosome and embraced human flesh, he did so forever. Can you imagine being God and taking on the limitation of being a human being and doing it not for 33 years, but forever? That's incredible. Never taking his humanity off to hang it, to hang it up like an old worn-out coat. He's never doing that. And so think about this in terms of significance and implications of the doctrine of creation and human sexuality refracted through the lens of Jesus' sexuality. Think about this. Our humanity, including our sexual difference, has become an intrinsic part of who God the Son is and who God the Son will be forever. So that one day... When you and I see God in all of his fullness, the beatific, the theological, the beatific vision, when we see God in the beatific vision, we will see a crucified, circumcised Jewish male named Jesus. And we won't say, I hope we won't say, hey, show us the Father, would you, Jesus? Because his very person will be the fullness of the revelation of God the Father and yet embodied in the limitations of human existence as a crucified, circumcised, Jewish male. It's incredible. And so a Christian vision of creation and human sexuality 
connects with Jesus at these two key points, his incarnation and his resurrection. In the incarnation, Jesus embraces human sexual differentiation by taking on male flesh and traveling the virgin's womb. And in the resurrection, when God raises Jesus bodily, he enshrines sexual differentiation for all eternity. And so with both the incarnation and the resurrection, God powerfully affirms and then reaffirms the goodness of human sexuality and then promises that it will continue forever. So that even when this earth is no more, the new heavens and the new earth have dawned, and people neither marry nor are given in marriage, even then there will still be male and female. So you see, male and female are not only part of the original creation, they are part of the new creation. Our being biologically sexed is not only for this age, It's also for the age to come. And so incarnation and resurrection, but of course we're not done yet because there's all that stuff in the middle between those two magnificent points in the storyline of Jesus. These reflections on Jesus' incarnation and resurrection, they form, of course, the baseline, I think, for our, our thinking about human sexuality, but there's still a large chunk of his story we need to consider, and it's his earthly life. And what do we learn about our sexuality from Jesus' earthly life? Well, I think one of the most important truths we should reflect on, we learn, is this. No one was more fully human or sexually contented than Jesus. And yet Jesus never engaged in a single sexual act. Think about that for a moment. Jesus never enjoyed the pleasures of sex. Jesus never enjoyed an intimate touch. Jesus never enjoyed a lingering romantic kiss. And Jesus never indulged in sexual fantasy or lust of the kind that he roundly condemns. And yet he is, at the same time, as Hebrews 4 puts it, one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, fully human. And yet Jesus flourished in his humanity and enjoyed perfect, though not easy, but perfect contentment in God. Of course, in our hypersexualized culture, this is an impossibility, isn't it? This is inconceivable that you could have those two things hanging together, right? I mean, this is totally inconceivable to have someone who could be sexually chaste, even celibate, and yet experience the fullness of what it means to be a human being or the joy of sexual contentment. Our culture, as we are all aware, insists that sexual activity, sexual practice, is essential to human fulfillment, that you cannot be human, or at least not a a fulfilled and thriving human being without it. You ever seen a Viagra or Cialis commercial? You know the gut-level appeal of what we're talking about here. The implication goes something like this in its simplest form. No sex, no life, sex, life. On the other hand, ironically enough, our culture also says that our biological sex, watch this, our biological sex is what our culture says, our biological sex, whether we're male or female, that's secondary. In fact, in some respects, that's optional. It's why bisexualism is on the rise. It is why transgenderism is on the rise. It is why we have already entered into a post-gay culture. That's why in the future we're going to see people no longer receiving their bodies as graciously given, as fixed features of their identity, but as options to consider and, and if need be, to renegotiate, to better align with their sense of self or to suit their goals and ambitions. You think of Caitlyn Jenner as a famous case in point who affirms on her blog, quote, I'm learning every day what it means to be my true self. Or in the words of that famous pop icon, Miley Cyrus, quote, I don't relate to being boy or girl, and I don't have to have my partner relate to boy or girl. We live in confused and confusing times. With a culture that is sending amazingly confusing messages, 
speaking out of both sides of its mouth, contradicting itself at every turn. I have seven children, as I've already mentioned, uh, 18 through 10, kind of packed in there, and two are in high school, and two are in junior high, and it is a confusing time. It's a confusing, confusing time. It's a confusing time for all of us, isn't it? But of course, the life of Jesus tells a very different story. His way of being in the world deconstructs these powerful, pervasive, cultural idols and cultural myths. And the main, I think, implication of the life of Jesus for human sexuality is simply this. While sexuality, that is to say, our being biologically sexed as male and female, is, listen, essential to what it means to be human, can't be human without it, sexual practice is not essential. If we want to live a fully human life, we have to embrace our sexed bodies. We can't sit loosely or lightly to our sexed bodies, but... We don't have to engage in sexual practice, sexual activity. Jesus didn't. And who of us would want to accuse Jesus of being anything less than fully human? You know, if you're like most people, you've probably never heard a talk or a sermon on the sexuality of Jesus. You may have never read a book on the topic or a chapter or a blog post for that matter. We seldom, I think, pause to reflect on the sexuality of Jesus. And I don't mean in saying that, that we don't reflect on what Jesus thought or what Jesus taught. There's plenty of that going on. But we don't tend to reflect on who Jesus was, who Jesus is. Therein lies our problem. Because we don't think about the sexuality of Jesus, we, I believe, have to figure out what it means to have these biologically sexed bodies without any light from the one who reveals what it means to be truly human. Which is like trying to explain suffering without appealing to the sovereignty of God. You see, somewhere along the way, Christians divorce the Bible's teaching on human sexuality from the Bible's teaching on the humanity and the sexuality of Jesus. As a result, we turned, I think, the good news of God's intentions for human sexuality into what often amounts to a stale set of moral rules, which is why young people are rejecting the Christian faith in droves. The the primary issue is that the Christian faith, not that it's not true, that's not really even the debate these days, days, the issue for young people, millennials, and iGen, is that it's ugly. It's not beautiful. It makes no moral sense. It doesn't promote human flourishing. But this is what happens, I think, when we separate Christian ethics from the Christian gospel. We're left with moralism on the one hand, we're left with legalism on the other hand, and these two are ugly curmudgeons who, as we all know, will leech the life out of us and leave us with nothing but guilty feelings on the inside. And so if we're going to understand the doctrine of creation and human sexuality, I believe we need to understand understand both of them in light of the person of Jesus Christ, his incarnation, his resurrection, the whole of his life. But even more importantly, I would say this, if we're going to live, if we're going to live in our communities, in our churches, in our schools, in our homes, in our marriages, in our parenting. We're going to live the doctrine of creation and human sexuality with all of its beautiful and messy implications, then we definitely need, we definitely need to understand them both in light of the person of Christ. Yes, his incarnation, yes, his resurrection, yes, the whole of his life, because it culminates on the cross at Calvary which is where the doctrine of redemption meets human sexuality, at the cross of Christ, in the embrace of the crucified Messiah. And it is there, in the embrace of the crucified Messiah, where we learn in the depths of our soul that indeed, quote, there is no one righteous, no, not even one. 
that all have turned away, they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, no, not even one. That a person is not justified by works of the law or by his heterosexuality or by his attempts at sexual purity, but only through faith in Jesus Christ. That we all deal, every one of us in this room, we all deal with sexual struggles and brokenness of one kind or another. And that we all, every one of us in this room, needs forgiveness and healing for our sexual brokenness and sin. And that Jesus is more than willing to meet us there. In our brokenness. In our shame. In our sin. Here I am, Jesus says. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. An invitation for each one of us. Beautiful and broken as we are, in our humanity and in our sexuality, a beautiful invitation to each and every one of us. And as we open the door of our lives to Christ afresh, he will enter in afresh, bringing with him all of his grace and beauty and power, washing us, sanctifying us, and justifying us in his own precious blood. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the mystery of the Incarnation and the beauty of the person of Christ and the wonder of not only what Jesus has done for us in his sin-bearing life and death, but the powerful and transformative and life-giving reality of who he is in his person. All the vistas, all the horizons that it opens up for us theologically, the inspiration and encouragement it provides, but even more importantly, Lord, the reality of his person and his presence with us through his spirit, who can enable us to be faithful to the ministries you've called us to, faithful to the truth of your word, faithful to the beauty of the gospel, faithful to the mission of the church. We thank you for the grace that we have in Jesus Christ. May we grow in it all the more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you, Todd, very much. Um, We've got some microphones that we will be ready to uh, uh, ask some questions. Let me begin. Um, Why why is it that you, you, I noticed you prefer the term biologically sexed? You don't use gender, you don't, etc. So I'm I'm interested in, what are you you thinking about that? Yeah, great question. Everybody caught that question, why do I use biologically sex as opposed to gender? Because in our culture, we've conflated gender and sex, which leads to massive confusion. Because gender is largely, though not entirely, socially constructed. Gender, masculine and feminine, as gender categories and concepts and types, right? Pink and blue, blah, 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 right? That stuff. That's largely socially constructed. It's not entirely socially constructed because you move down into sort of the profundity of gender expression. It gets to biological sex, right? So it's more on a spectrum, not a either or, yes or no. But this is passed in legislation. The Obama administration, for example, passed this, conflating, confusing, in my judgment, gender and sex. And it's a genius move, right? It's a genius move. Because then you can say... At one and the same time, if you've conflated those two things, that gender's socially constructed, sex is socially constructed. So if you want to unconstruct or deconstruct your sex, go for it. Totally legitimate, totally fine. So one of the simple things I think we as Christians need to do is recover the distinction between gender and sex. And try to be disciplined in our language, even though our culture is not disciplined. In fact, our culture uses gender. Most often, right? I mean, I, you know, we fill out forms for kids all the time. And, and, and I, now I note when it says sex, male or female, because it usually says gender. Great, thank you. I just want you to know, uh, it, these, are, these are very critical things. Words matter. Uh, some of you might remember that we adopted a resolution uh, as an EFCA conference in 2017, a resolution on, on uh, being created in male and female and the covenant of marriage. 
And we used the expression biologically sexed. Yeah. You may remember that yes, conversation yes, yeah. we had yes. back and forth. So yes. this is another one of those just to let you know that, that it, it's been very helpful for me, Todd. So Good. thank you for Good. helping us to pro, helping me to Great. process some of those things. And uh, so thank you. And can that, I just say about that? Yes, I, I remember driving uh, my 16, he was 16 at the time, he was 18 now, but my oldest son to youth group. And he, <laughs> out of nowhere, so we live in Oak Park. It's a very progressive community. It's like a little slice of Manhattan in the Midwest. It's a very progressive community just on the near western suburbs of Chicago. And we're just driving, going to drop him off at youth group, and he all of a sudden out of nowhere says to me, Dad, why do people say gender is socially constructed? Because the conversations they were having in, in high school, yes. I was not having when I was in high no. school. No, They weren't even on the radar. Right. I mean, they weren't even on the radar. Yeah. Sorry, I'm going to start preaching. No, so it's okay, but here's the thing. We're not having that discussion now as pastors and leaders either, and we need to be. Yeah, amen. That, amen. That's why I think I it's very helpful. Yes. In light of Jesus' sexuality being uh, enshrined yeah. for all eternity, please comment on uh, Jesus' uh, statement to the Sadducees. When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Yes. I think the essence of that is that procreation is not going to be happening in the new creation. Because death won't be happening in the new creation. So I think that's primarily a statement about procreation. And, maybe secondarily, uh, or maybe actually maybe it's primary. I think in the new creation, we are going to enjoy one another with the kind of joy and vibrancy and intimacy that great marriages enjoy. But it won't be exclusive. And I don't mean by that sexual, right? I mean, don't, don't, don't confuse that. I'm trying to say the relationship of marriage and the intimacy and vibrancy of that, that, that you experience sexually, the joy, right? The white-hot energy of that in a good, functioning, healthy marriage. That will be universal for all the people of God as we engage and enjoy one another. Which I think is incredible. I think that's amazing. So I think that's what Jesus is getting at there. That the unitive and the procreative purpose of marriage will be superfluous in the new creation, will be outmoded. But not that biologically sexed bodies will be transcended. That's the mistake I think we often make, because we have a kind of platonic, Gnostic view of the afterlife. Many Christians do. And when you think about heaven, I mean, you think about like where the story's all headed, I think most people think heaven, like they get it from Milton and they get it from Michelangelo, that we're going to die and we go to heaven, and there's something about a resurrection, something about a judgment, we're not sure how all that fits into the eschatology, but we're going to be in heaven and going to be great to be done with these bodies. We hear this all the time at, at funerals, don't we? In fact, we hear preachers at funerals say these kinds of things sometimes. And so I just want to say that while pro the unitive and procreative purposes of marriage will be outmoded, biologically sexed bodies will continue forever. Jesus will always be Jesus forever and ever and ever and ever, world without end. Yes. I'd like to follow, Todd, thank you very much yeah. for this. I'd like to follow on on that question because it's the same one that I had. So if you're explaining to a congregant... Yes why we retain our physical bodies. What text do you go to to make this case from the biblical text as opposed to uh, inferences from systematic theology or arguments of silence? I think the, the most powerful... Well, Jesus is proof. Jesus is proof. That's why both eschatology and theological anthropology need to be grounded in and take the starting point from Christology. Jesus is the starting point. And Luke 24, where he appears to his disciples, and what is clear there is there is a continuity between Jesus' physical, earthly body and life and his post-resurrection life. There's continuity. He's recognizable to his disciples, and I think we all will be as well. So that would be the place I would go is A, specific text, and then B, the theological reflection on the person of Jesus and the meaning of the resurrection. And, and then I might go to the reality of the new creation. Biblical eschatology is not death and heaven. Biblical eschatology is death, heaven, inauguration or the, the dawning of the new creation, which is an embodied existence. It will be something like this. Whereas Revelation 23 or 4 says, 
where the kings of the earth are going to bring their glory into it. I mean, that's amazing. Kind of the, the, the best of things happening in this creation will be brought into the new creation as a kind of physical, albeit transformed reality. And that we will recognize each other. There'll be a continuity of identity. So how would you advise us as pastors to counsel um, families where a child in the family is beginning to experience gender dysphoria? Yes. And they're hearing you're feeling you're a young boy, and, but you're feeling like you really are a female and you should change that identity. That's one question. The second question is the longer we go in this stage, I think there's going to come, probably has already come, people who've made the change themselves or their children have changed, yes. and then conversion has happened. And the question is, does biblical faithfulness yes. require us to try and reverse that choice yes. somehow? either for our children or yes. for ourselves, yeah. if you could address that yeah, simple question. Uh, I mean, I've, I've dealt with both issues. Lovely 65-year-old man in our congregation who, ever since he was about four years, four years old, has woken up wanting to be a, a girl. When he got married early on, his wife would come home from work and find him in her clothes. Uh, he's wrestled, and, and he said to me, he said, you have no idea what it's like to have to exert so much willpower to be content and comfortable and live in your biological sex. Because I would imagine for most of us, perhaps not all of us, but for most of us in the room, we exert no willpower to kind of keep that thing maintained. Right? So that's, a, that's kind of a mind. Maybe three things kind of pastorally. Joy, tears, and hope. So joy is sort of the the prophylactic preaching, counseling, life-living, which is casting a compelling, joy-filled, grace-filled vision of what I call mere sexuality. The essential, important, biblical, theological distinction between male and female, that that's, when you linger on it and you lean into it, is stunningly beautiful and powerful and ought to cause us all to go, wow, that God did that. And as preachers and pastors, we need to be doing all of that sort of work, preaching and teaching on these themes, not neglecting them, even though they're controversial in the culture, so that our people get all of this stuff in their heads and hearts, so that when these hard things come, they're readied and steady. So like doing that with joy, then when the counseling appointment comes, tears. And that's a way of saying living as a pastor and maybe it's needing to cultivate and grow this as a pastor, but certainly living this as a pastor, the ability, the capacity, the readiness, the willingness to step into the really screwed-up realities of this world and sexual brokenness. To wade into those with, with tears, with heartbreak, and to affirm and be comfortable living in the tension of the brokenness of that. I mean, I think it's so easy as pastors, you know, you had an appointment at three, and then you got another appointment at five, four, and you got another appointment at five, because you've batched all of your counseling appointments on Tuesday, so you can get to your sermon on, you know, we, we all know how this goes, right? And, and it's the third appointment of the day, and you're thinking about dinner, and you want to go home, and, and, and you're very professional, and you're very sort of abstract, and, and you're very emotionally detached, and there's no tears, there's, there's no even sort of EKG raising with the brokenness but to sort of move into it with tears and affirm, that's hard. I'm sorry. And then the third is with hope. Regardless of how that works out, and I think this is where wisdom needs to be cultivated and then, and then deployed for people, biblical wisdom, theological wisdom, practical wisdom, however a family works that out, that, that you, you point them in the direction of hope in the gospel, in the person of Jesus, in the communion of saints, in ultimately the power and the reality of the resurrection, that the resurrection is going to be the resolution of all of our sexual brokenness. And so to steady with hope, I think, is so, so important. Um, maybe just, can I just say one more specific thing about that? Because we live... With, because the body-self dualism has so taken over the thinking of Westerners and Christians with that, 
we are of the view that what's going on inside myself is determinative and constitutive of my identity and that the body is just an instrument and it's very optional to my sense of identity. And that goes back a long way and there's strong impulses within the history of Christian theology from Augustine forward that, that move all of us in those sorts of directions and we need to sort of take a good dose of the Bible to keep from going body-self-dualism, a kind of radical dualism. It's unhelpful. But that has taken over the culture, I think, almost entirely. And the practical impact of that is you now have 8-year-olds that are, or 12-year-olds, boys or girls, that are going through all sorts of crazy puberty-induced culture things happening. And they're so like, I love Dan Siegel's book about, about adolescence, he, the title of the book, Brainstorm. Because <laughs> that's what's going on inside their heads. There's a brainstorm of stuff going on emotions, hormones, all the rest of it. And, and, and if they have one little flutter of a kind of attraction to someone of the same sex, they may come out and say, well, I think I'm same-sex, I think I'm gay. Rather than a Christian view on those things, which was, at, like Augustine and others, in a sense, very skeptical of those fleeting kind of feelings and emotions happening inside of oneself. Sitting a little more loosely to that kind of thing. All that's to say, as I've said to parents, uh, uh, one couple in particular who was, their daughter, teenage, was wrestling with gender, is wrestling with gender dysphoria. One of my counselors was patience. Don't freak out. Stay present. Be patient. Many of these things, this, and this is social scientific data, many of those things resolve themselves with time when you get to the other side of adolescence. Todd, if I could say, and then we'll get to this one here, it, it's this issue of identity. Yeah. And Caitlyn Jenner. Yes said, what matters regarding my identity is what's between my ears. Yes. And so that's that, that huge I, uh, notion of the, the duality and that's what matters is what I think about it. And added to that with young people is this social contagion, yeah. rapid onset of gender dysphoria, these kinds of things that it, it's sort of trendy. So that's something else I think we need to be aware of. And the, and the final thing is there are increasing detransition stories. So it, it, it's very real. You know, yes. Walt Heyer, who has done this, you know, he did it years ago. But that's another, I think, significant thing that people are going to come, what do they do? And yeah. there are a number. Of, and that, but those narratives aren't written about. Yeah. They're, they're not the ones that are going to be, it's a, it's, a, it's a contrary narrative to the prevailing cultural narrative. Yeah. Yeah. Can I say something? Because your second point about someone who's transitioned and then they, they come to Christ or faith. And I personally, as a pastor on that, would be very slow to get overly doctrinaire on detransitioning. There's a place to expose people to that kind of literature and thinking and examples and so on, but I, I, I just personally would, would be real cautious about that one. Personally. Hi. I Hi. come from a university culture, and I've had several of my high school students ask uh, whether Jesus himself was gay. And I was wondering uh, what kind of response you would give to that. You know, I'm, emba I'm embarrassed because I haven't thought much about that. I know that's probably an, an embarrassing thing to say. Um, because that's one of those ones that is so, forgive me for putting it this way, so stunningly no-brainer. I haven't, I haven't so, so, and I know that's not fair because that's a real question, so that may reflect my lack of, of meaningful interaction with people asking that as a serious question. I, 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 don't, I, I don't know where I would go with that. I mean, some folks in the room probably will have a more articulate answer, a ready answer for that than, than, than I, I would need to take a, a few minutes to think about that. I guess maybe the question would be, is there any evidence that would lead us to think he was gay and... And, and maybe to ask the question about what do you mean by gay? Do you mean he identified with the sociocultural community of gays? Well, no. Do you mean he was, had same-sex attraction some of the time, much of the time, all the time? I don't know how you'd prove that. That seems unlikely. Um, so I'd want to kind of probe on that and then ask why one would suppose that would be the case. So I'm sorry, I, I, Greg, maybe you've got a 
Not to put Greg you on the spot, but well, for me, it would be this: Does does the Bible sanction gayness, yeah. being gay? Yeah. Uh, and even to ask the question, it's how do you define gay? Yes. Uh, and if gay is celibate, if that's what it means, gay equals celibate, that's a different issue. Yeah. But that's sometimes how it's understood. But for for me. Um, the way it's generally understood, defined today, uh, I would say no. Actually, I'd like to pick up on these points that have been made from a pastoral perspective because many of us are dealing with people, uh, some of our high school kids or others who are coming into this difficult uh, issue. So I'd like to ask you if you could address two critical questions. First is, is the sin in the sexual orientation or in the behavior. Secondly, in dealing with homosexuals, is the goal reorientation or abstinence or behavioral purity? Yes, great questions. Um, you're probably aware uh, that, that, that both of those questions are hot topics within evangelical Christianity. They get debated at the Evangelical Theological Society. So my very dear friend, Wesley Hill, to whom I dedicated the book, is a celibate gay Christian. And he would say, uh, same-sex attraction is not sin. Sexual practice outside of the context of marriage is sin. But my friend Denny Burke would disagree with that and is published on this topic. So I'd kind of refer you to, to them... I don't tell Denny this, but I tend to side with Wesley Hill on this one. Though I, though I get Denny's kind of pressing epithumia language and, you know, all of that. I, I, I feel the force of that. But um, I think maybe kind of, I don't know that I've got a kind of an airtight argument why I go with Wesley as opposed to Denny, because they both have compelling things to say. But I think both pastorally and theologically, I um, think Wesley's view has better coherence. And then the second question. I would say the goal is abstinence. The hope is healing. So I would not go in personally, Pastor, and I, and I have not approached it this way, and there, and there will be disagreements on this, I'm sure, in the room, but this is just kind of where I'm coming from. I would not go into a situation with, with the people. I, I have not gone into situations with people whom I know are same-sex attracted with the goal of if they could just, as I heard one person say to me, uh, he went to his pastor one time and he confessed that he was same-sex attracted and his pastor said, well, you know what you need to do? You need to get married. Like that is not, that is not joy, tears, and hope, pastoral care in my judgment. Um, so I would not make that the goal. I would always hold out the hope if they say, oh, well, let me finish one sentence and start the second. The goal, the goal is chastity, sexual chastity, which applies to every single one of us as followers of Jesus, whether you're married or not married. People that are married don't get to dispense with chastity. Like in many ways, that's a, that's a serious chastity calling. So the goal is chastity because I think kind of theologically and biblically, what is out of bounds in, in non-Christian fornication is any sexual act or practice that happens outside the context of marriage. So I think that's what we want. That's the goal is chastity, sexual chastity for all of us. But then we can hold out the hope that God might heal you. You don't want to hold out a false hope. Right, and have somebody pinning, pine, you know, kind of pinning their hopes on that, but but hold out, and it does happen. It's amazing. It does, in fact, happen to people. But in the meantime, walk the difficult, arduous road of sexual chastity. Someone I've mentioned his name, Wesley Hill. If you haven't read Wesley Hill's Washed and Waiting, his little sort of spiritual autobiography on his wrestling with with being a, a chaste, celibate, same-sex attracted seriously thoughtful Christian, I would highly commend that. Highly commend that. Not even for where he comes out kind of on the biblical theological stuff, but it's a beautiful memoir, so to speak, of his own experience that's chock full of rich pastoral application and reflection. To that I would say, Wesley Hill spoke at our theology conference in 2013. Some okay. of you may have been there. 
Um, but, but as I recall, just as a, a, a sidebar, that is, it's not, maybe not a sidebar, Wesley would acknowledge his uh, same-sex attraction is a mark of brokenness. Yes. So that, yes. that I think is, so that sort of gets Thank back you. then yeah. to Jesus yes. um, and recognizing him. And here's then the, the, the other thing that he would say, and that is, uh, I don't want any show of hands, but how many of us that are in a marriage, heterosexual marriage, have perfect sex lives? Right. Uh, don't raise your hand. <laughs> the point is, yes. post-Genesis 3, everybody is broken at one level or another. And so I think the key there is, I think what, it's sort of a, a normal and it's okay, and it's not a mark of brokenness. And I think that's some of the discussion that I think Steve raised yep. regarding orientation, practice, etc. Yep. But, but, but Wesley does say that. Oh, that's right. There are so many uh, forces that are pushing young people and adults maybe toward sexual reorientation, but your example of this man who is now 65 and at the age of four began to feel that. My wife has a, a relative who very early on um, began to feel that way. Um, and so I don't know if this is psychology or theology. Where does that come from when it's not some uh, outside influence, when it, it seems to be just there from the very beginning? Yes. Uh, and maybe your comment kind of answered that already. Is this... Uh, uh, an element of brokenness, of, you know, because of the fall, that um, you know we see these things. Yeah. What do we say about yeah, where that comes question. from? I, my understanding of the social scientific literature, the scientists are going to look at this, is that, is that they're not clear on the etiology of same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria. They're not sure of that. I don't think, as Christians, we have any reason to be uncomfortable with assigning at least some of that to broken bodies and biology and brains, for that matter. I don't think we should be nervous about, uh, nervous about the prospect of scientists coming along one day and saying, it looks like there's some sort of genetic proclivities or some chemicals over here in this brain, so on and so forth, so on and so forth, that, that tend to go that direction. I don't think that should make us nervous. I think we should say, yeah, there's thousands of things that are, in my, that are broken about me that lead to all kinds of different non-God-honoring behaviors, right? So I don't think we should get overly nervous about that. I think we should say kind of both and. Hold out the, 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 um, the possibility, the reality that it's both and, that, that, that it's, some of it is going to surely be biology and genetics and brain chemistry and Surely a lot of it's going to be environment and culture and family of origin and all that kind of stuff. And that, and that that is a big, mysterious soup that makes all of us who we are. And we just need to kind of live in the tensions and a bit of the, the unknown of all of that. I want to make a little bit of a U-turn and go back to your um, talk about the sexuality of Jesus. And this is maybe because of the broken brain thing that you were just talking about. I, I don't, I'm not sure if I understood what you were trying to say correctly. Um, I heard you make the assertion, if, if I'm quoting you correctly, that Jesus retained the limits of his humanity in his glorification. Yes. And it's, it sounded as though... Um, you, you sort of built your case from there on that particular assertion. Um, I'm glad Luke 24 came up um, because what I uh, didn't hear acknowledged is the distinctions between Jesus' pre-resurrection and post-resurrection in his glorified body. So, Yes, he was recognizable to his disciples in Luke 24, but it was not until after he chose to yeah. remove his hiddenness from them. Um, he was material in the upper room because he was able to be touched and so forth. But there's a, a lot of his humanity he didn't retain. You know, he entered into a room that was locked. He yeah. hid his identity from people. Um, I, didn't hear, yeah. I didn't hear any discussion or acknowledgement of the 
differences yep, very in, in his humanity. Yep. And, and if we acknowledge that there were differences, then is it not possible that, um, does that possibly weaken your case about his eternal sexual identity? Yeah, great question. I didn't reflect. It's a, it's a very good observation. Very fair. I didn't reflect really at all. I was really emphasizing the continuity rather than the discontinuity. And you're pointing out you didn't talk about the discontinuity. And <laughs> guilty as charged, I didn't talk about the discontinuity because the bottom line is what I'm trying to do is make a the biblical theological case that embodiment matters. And the best argument for that is Jesus. Incarnation, resurrection, life. Really, incarnation, resurrection. Because... If we're going to understand the, 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 the significance and implications of the doctrine of creation for human sexuality, we've got to recover as Christians that embodiment matters. It's not optional. It's essential and constitutive of who we are as human beings. So, very fair. I didn't, I didn't really touch on it all. Discontinuity. Though, whatever, and there is discontinuity. He's walking through walls. That's not exactly the way it works for you and me, right? Um, so, there is some discontinuity. There's a lot of continuity, though. There's a lot of continuity. And whatever discontinuity there is, we have that little vignette of like, walks through walls, they don't quite recognize him, that's a little weird. How does that work? But he's eating fish and having a fish lunch on the Sea of Galilee, how does that work? You know, even his resurrection glorified body. So there is discontinuity, but I don't think there's an, I don't think the kind, the little, the little bits of discontinuity that we have in the gospel record are, would give us any reason to think that Jesus, that the Son of God has shorn his humanity to go, as it were, back to being Son of God pre-incarnate. The incarnation is forever. And I can't think of anything that would push against that. Hans Matawemi's here. He's a theologian. He might have, a, have something that might push against. Do you have anything to push against that? It's called deflecting. <laughs> How do you, what do you think about that? Was that all right, that answer? Is that fair? Little bits of discontinuity, but not much. And I certainly want to be like, oh, Jesus is now son of God again with no body, and he's like omniscient and everywhere and flying around everywhere. Yeah, I just, I would have, I would have liked to have heard the caveat yeah. uh, instead fair. of just kind of the general assertion that Jesus retained the limits of his... Yeah humanity in eternity Fair. without Fair. any Fair. further caveat to that. So that's, it, that's it just the, seemed a little bit on the No, no, side. that's very fair. That's the preacher's blind spot. You know how that goes. You preach this great sermon, you made your point, and people line up afterwards to talk to you and shake your hand and say, well, you didn't mention anything about this, <laughs> right? Am I the only one that's ever had that happen? It's a fair point. And I'm not trying to make light of it. I mean, it's, it's, I want to reflect. I have not, as you can tell much on the theological, the real serious theological significance of that. Hey, uh, thanks for that. Question on a practical level. Uh, how do we as church leaders paint a picture of human flourishing for our congregations that doesn't automatically assume sexual fulfillment as an intrinsic part of that? Great question. We model a robust, sexually chaste life which magnifies to our congregations, demonstrates to them because they see it in our own lives, they feel it in our own lives, they see it in the way our eyes work in the congregation, that um, we don't need sex to survive and thrive. Sexual activity, I mean. So, I, you know, I want to start with me and kind of embodying it and living it. Um, and then I think the second thing we can do, which is huge, and in, in my book, Mere Sexuality, I have a whole chapter on this called Friendship, Celibacy, and Same-Sex Relationships. We need to work hard, I think, at, I want to be careful how I say this, gently de deconstructing the cult of the family. This is a focus on the family cult, evangelical culture we find ourselves in that inverts the Pauline priority. I mean, I think if you were to ask Paul, Paul, no, seriously, what's better? <laughs> Singleness or married? He said, well, if you have to get married, I mean, you can get married. But you can't be a pioneer church planter if you're married. I mean, that's, you know, who'd be dragging a wife and children all around? I mean, 
Peter's not doing what I'm doing. He's got a wife and kids. You know, but we've inverted that almost entirely, and there's lots of kind of historical reasons for that, starting with the Reformation, Martin Luther, God bless him, blessing marriage, but then it kind of sets us on that trajectory. So, um, cultivating a friendship culture in our churches in lots of creative ways. Cultivating a friendship culture. American, Western culture, American culture, and evangelical church culture is a weak friendship culture. And it's not entirely our faults. It's partly because everything has been eroticized and sexualized. So if you have an intimate relationship, it better be with benefits. Otherwise, why are you doing it? So what do we call two really close, intimate male friends? What, what's the word we use for that? They have a, a bromance. That's, like, that's, like a, that's a telltale of what, what our culture has done. Now, in doing that, what that does is that sort of takes... Chaste, um, sexually chaste, same-sex, relation, intimate relationships and kind of is suggestive about them and, and, and in a sense kind of erotic, paints them with that erotic sexualized brush, which causes, I think, subtly the weakening of the friendship culture in the culture and in the church. So whatever we can do to raise and encourage the a robust friendship culture, I think, is really important. And this is also super important for those in our midst who are struggling with same-sex attraction on a consistent basis, who are staring in the face the lifelong prospect of celibacy and singleness. Like, that is no joke, right? I mean, that is a, as Justin Lee puts it, who is same-sex practice affirming, if you know Justin Lee, his book, Torn, he, as he puts it, is torn by the lifelong prospect of celibacy. Like that is a burden that is, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think it was like unbearable. Whereas I think Wesley Hill is walking in the way of biblical wisdom and fidelity and faithfulness and has been very candid about the lack of a robust friendship culture. So he's written, not only Washington Waiting, but he's written that Spiritual Friendship. You may be aware of that book, which I think is fantastic. But everybody, ought to, all of us ought to get that book, Spiritual Friendship, and think about how do we cultivate that in our churches? How do we cultivate that in our churches? So what do we do uh, when someone comes to our church with a agenda to, and the word was used uh, in our context, to bulldoze uh, into the church uh, an agenda that's coming from outside? And you're trying to respond in a loving and biblical way, but they have a clear agenda, and there's all those. So it's how to interact with the culture in a wise and godly way. There yeah. you go. Do you mean they have a they have a kind of same-sex affirming agenda, like, hey, can we change the bylaws here, or change the, the church constitution, or hey, this needs to be affirmed and accepted in this congregation? Is that what you mean? Like, um, it actually, was even more aggressive than that. You know, um, so, yeah, when they're coming in, they're actually coming in from, uh, with a, a direction given politically, I think, oh, okay. that said, go into these churches, these are the last bastions oh, yes. of holding yeah. these truths, and so we have to knock this down culturally, yep. and they're, they're actually coming in with that yeah. view. But, but also on the second level is when you're having just a general conversation with someone that yeah. isn't coming with that, but they're coming from a philosophical direction that we're all, you know, prejudiced, and where they want to change our views. Yeah. Well, I would, as it relates with the first, maybe the second too, assume the best until you can't any longer, right? Assume the best, be very long-suffering. I think we need to be very long-suffering. Even with those that seem like they've got a very clear, very aggressive agenda, we should err on the side of long-suffering. Without being made the fool or a doormat, but we should probably err on this, for Jesus' sake, err on the side of long-suffering and assuming the best until we can't assume the best any longer. And then I think it's to have a fierce conversation that's full of tears and love and kindness, but is blunt and straightforward and straight shooting and with one person and then with two people and then tell it to the church, tell it to the elders and, and to work through that. Titus chapter 3, at the end of the book of Titus, talks about warn a person once and twice and then have nothing more to do with that person. I think that's a kind of application of Matthew chapter 18. So I would 
Go there when you have to go there, but start with a fierce conversation that's full of love and tenderness and tears, but blunt, candid, straightforward. Um, and then you may just need to ready yourself for eggs and mud and controversy and news cameras outside your church and getting written up in the local paper and people saying crazy stuff about you. And, and then you, I love the end of First Peter chapter 2. When he was spoken against, he did not utter a word, but he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And so to ready ourselves for that sort of persecution, social ostracism, agendas that are really aggressive and really problematic, and that we just are entrusting ourselves to him who judges justly, which, for all of us in the room, I think we're all aware, is coming. I mean, in 2020, if the election goes a certain kind of way, there could be a culture war backlash that could be really interesting for all of our local churches and for institutions like Trinity International University that could be real agenda-aggressive using the power of the state and the sword to make it happen. So we hope that doesn't happen. We pray that doesn't happen. We advocate for that not to happen. But if it does, we've got to entrust ourselves to him who judges us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the EFCA Theology Podcast. You can find more episodes by searching EFCA Theology Podcast in any podcast app or on the web at efca.org slash podcast. Thank you.